Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Yan Gru. On his new memoir, I Live a Life Like Yours. Jan Gru was born in 1981 in Oslo. The author of a wide-ranging body of work in fiction, non-fiction, children's books and academic literature, he is also Professor of Sociology at the University of Oslo. His memoir, I Live a Life Like Yours, was published in Norway in 2018 and has been hailed as a major milestone in Norwegian non-fiction. It is the first Norwegian non-fiction book to be nominated for the Nordic Council's Literature Prize in 50 years. And it's now been translated into English by B.L. Crook. And I'm talking to Jan today about it. Jan, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. So tell us, first of all, what was your aim with this book? Oh, that's a good question. Um... It took me, I would say, around 10 years to write it. Uh, so it, it's hard to talk about aims because they, they change over time. And the book evolved quite a lot uh, from the sort of the, the first early sketches, which were, I think, memories, really. I mean, the, the book is a memoir. But the transformative event for me was a while after I'd become a father, I got uh, an archive of sorts from my parents. Uh, they wanted to know whether I uh, would like to have to take from them uh, various records uh, from my childhood, medical records, uh, letters that had gone to and from doctors, welfare services, and so on. I sat down to read those papers, which were a story about my childhood, one that I didn't really recognize or remember. And so I think one of the aims for me with the book was to try and work out how two very different stories about my childhood could be could be true. Uh, the things that I remembered and the things that were written down, which, you know, were, were so, so very different. So what we haven't mentioned so far is you were diagnosed at three years old with spinal muscular atrophy. So tell us in the most basic terms what that means. Well, it's a good question with a, a long answer, but I'll, I'll try to put it in the, in the simplest way possible, my, I, my muscles are weak. I was a child that started walking relatively early, but I also fell down quite a lot. And so my parents grew worried, increasingly worried over time. The diagnosis I got uh, at age three was for a, a very rare uh, genetic condition. 
it was made on the basis of a, a muscular biopsy. That's what they did back then was basically to look at part of the muscle fibers and then make an, an educated clinical guess about the sort of the, the underlying condition. And so I lived with that diagnosis for a number of years, for more than 20 years, and it never quite fit. And when genetic testing became more precise, uh, when the technology had evolved, it turned out that that diagnosis was wrong. I didn't have spinal muscular atrophy at all. I had a, a, a different condition, uh, which was only became clear years after that again. But that diagnosis was nevertheless uh, the label or the, the category, if you will, that I grew up with. And that was used to, you know, explain me in a clinical sense. And so that was a very strange experience too, to read those papers and to know that a lot of what was said in very confident, very precise clinical language was wrong still. And so one of the, the key changes of that diagnosis, the later diagnosis, was that um, spinal muscular dystrophy is a progressive disease. And at the time, everybody was convinced that you would progressively get worse. That didn't happen. So when that new diagnosis happened, how did that, I guess, how did that change your own psychological relationship with your body? Yeah. I mean, it was just a strange way to grow up. I mean, I, I, as I said, I was, I was always a, a, a weak child and I grew weaker as I grew bigger because my, my muscles didn't keep up. So I started using a wheelchair at around the time I was eight and was able to walk for shorter and shorter distances until a point probably in my late teens where things stabilized more or less. And the diagnosis implied that I would keep growing weaker. Um, as you say, SMA can be, can be a, a progressive condition, but uh, there was always this sort of this, this sense of divergence between what was supposed to happen in my body and what actually happened. And fortunately, I had a very good doctor who was a friend of the family, a medical geneticist, who told me, who told my parents that these diagnoses are often imprecise. And we really shouldn't trust them too much. He knew that there was so much uncertainty involved. But even so, a diagnosis can be a very influential thing. I mean, it, it tells you what's going on with your body, what you can expect. And so I, I lived with that sense of something being off, something being wrong, which I, I think I've described elsewhere as being like being in a, a suit that doesn't fit you, like being in ill-fitting clothes. Uh, so just having that diagnosis disappear, um, which happened around the time I was 25, 26, was both a great relief and a sense of profound uncertainty of biographical disruption. So after that, I had to think about what my expectations for the future would be. And I think probably that was around the time that I started writing uh, what eventually became this book, trying to to get a sense of my life story in a different way. And definitely in a in a non-clinical, non-medical way. There's another writer in the book that I'd like to introduce here, acts as a sort of talisman throughout the book, the the poet Mark O'Brien. Can you tell us something about who he is and why he features in the book? Yeah. Um, so Mark O'Brien was a poet, among other things, uh, who lived for much of his life in, in Berkeley in, in California which is a place that is um, where I've lived as well, and a, a place that remains very important to me. He's written beautifully on, on his experience of disability, on vulnerable embodiment. He was also, physically speaking, much, much weaker than I was. 
than I am. And so it was important for me, I think, both to engage with the writing of other disabled authors and to remember that my experience of disability is not necessarily the most challenging one there is. I'm not saying other people are worse off than me because that's not what I'm trying to get across. But there are things in Mark O'Brien's experiences that I, I think make for a useful contrast with mine and a reminder of the kind of solidarity that can be found in vulnerability as well. So I mentioned in the introduction that you were born in 1981. Throughout the book, you include excerpts of you know, medical reports. And at one point, you're described by a doctor as having very good capability. And what happens is it's decided that you will go to an ordinary school and you will be surrounded by other children. Um, and that's how your education will proceed. And I wanted to talk about to what extent being born at that particular point in time dictated what happened next in terms of your education, and particularly in terms of the fact that, you know, 10 years earlier, things would have been worse. And presumably now, hopefully, they're a little better. So how did being born at that particular time affect you and, and what happened subsequently? Yes, no, that, that's a very good question. I think a lot of what you say rings true. I, I was born at a particular historical moment, as we, as we all are. And had I been born 10 years earlier, it's far from certain that I would have gone to an, an ordinary school um, because the, the education system in Norway as elsewhere has changed over time and has, has moved towards at least a greater degree of, of disability inclusion and, and accommodation. And at the same time, I'm, I'm writing a story about uh, my particular family circumstances. I, I grew up with parents who are and were very uh, resourceful and committed and politically aware people who fought for these things and, and for many other things during my, my childhood and, and my teenage years. And so both my family background and, and the historical moment, I think, speaks to what we often forget, which is that disability is a deeply historical thing. It tends to be thought of uh, in, in many situations as something ahistorical, as something that lives in individual bodies. It's, a, it's, it's understood, it's construed as a deficit in, in individual bodies. And that simply isn't true. This, what the thing that we call disability is a function of specific historical circumstances, specific societal circumstances, and of uh, the sort of the, the nexus of family, class, ethnicity, gender, uh, various other things come together to shape to shape disability. And that's that's a, a recurring theme in, in my book, that the reductionism uh, that is inherent to clinical medicine, it's been very important to me to get away from that, to, to provide more context. And you talk about on a on a wider level how having a disability means a a lifelong relationship with authorities, both medical but also social services, for instance. So tell us how that relationship has changed over the course of your life. Well, I mean, for for me, of course, the the relationship is is ongoing, and it changes with the social roles that I occupy. So right now, of course, a lot of these things are, are influenced by just the fact that I'm I'm a parent. Uh, and I think that to an extent, certainly in Norway and, and possibly in the, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of other countries as well, it's easier when talking about disabled people to envision either a disabled child or a disabled person living alone. It's much more difficult to see a, a parent 
who is also disabled. And I think that's that's a legacy of a, a lot of historical factors. I mean, of course, the, the, the Victorian charity discourse and, you know, every sort of story from uh, A Christmas Carol going forward will, will give us some, some frameworks and some 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 mental images of disabled children like Tiny Tim. But we have fewer images and fewer concepts of uh, disabled people who are also fully involved parents, citizens, disabled people in employment and so on. Now, those social roles, of course, bring with them a lot of, of complexities just in, in trying to work out the logistics of, of everyday life. And I've found that there's often a disjunct there between what we uh, what we expect uh, disabled people to be, the kind of services that are actually provided. We, we haven't come as far in those areas as we should. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jan Gru, and we're talking about his memoir, I Live a Life Like Yours. And Jan, I want to bring a couple of other writers in, Michelle Foucault being the um, perhaps more famous one, but also the writer Rosemary Garland Thompson. And you talk in the book about their work on ideas around the gaze, around both the medical and clinical gaze, and maybe just on a on a more prosaic terms just being stared at. Yes. One of the things I try to do in the book is not use the word disability over much. I, I, I try to get as close as possible to my very particular experiences of being a body, being a body with weak muscles, a number of other things I, I talk about in the book. 
um, I didn't want to draw too much on the sort of the, the relatively abstract concept of, of disability. There are more than a billion disabled people in, in the world, um, and it can be a very flattening category sometimes. But I did want to draw on a lot of the things that have been thought about disability, that have been written about disability. And so somebody like Rosemary Garland Thompson, who is a, a an American uh, feminist and philosophical scholar of, of disability, her writings on the gaze and on being stared at became uh, important references for me in, in writing the book because she'd written and thought some things that were so uh, clear and precise that I didn't really need to to work them out for myself. It, it felt like a, a much more natural thing to do, to quote her words on the subject and then um, use my own responses to those words. So uh, Rosemary, who is a friend, writes about disabled people's experiences of being professional starees. Uh, and what she means by that is, is that a lot of us are very, very used to being stared at. We look unusual when moving about in, in the world, uh, whether it is because we're using wheelchairs or because of other things. And so that is a social experience that is always with us. We expect to be stared at, and we expect having to to negotiate with people who stare at us. It's always a decision that I have to make, whether to, to meet somebody's gaze, whether to look away, whether to confront them silently, even uh, with the fact that they are staring at me or not. That's a way of, of being in the world that I can't really ignore. So there, there's always this layer of, of consciousness, this sort of layer of reflexivity that I have with me when moving around in the world. You mentioned Michel Foucault as well. Uh, his writings on, on the gaze is, they have to do with something that's a little bit different from that. It's, uh, his writings on, on the clinical gaze and the way that this can make you feel like an object in many ways. Um, the way that the medical way of Seeing, thinking, talking is conducive to a very uh, objective way of construing the body, which can make it quite difficult if you grow up under this case to develop a sense of, of subjectivity, to develop an, an identity that is <laughs> not connected to objecthood in a way. And this is also related to the, the work of the writer Irving Goffman that you talk about in the book on stigma. Yes, um, Goffman is, is of course, um, was one of the preeminent sociologists of his generation. He, and he was an extremely acute observer of micro interactions as a, that's the term of art, the way in which social reality is made, uh, in a million different social encounters. And stigma was one of his key topics, uh, where he wrote about the way in which physical, visible aspects of people are used to impute some sort of moral blame. Stigma in, in the etymological sense was a, a way of branding uh, runaway slaves in classical Greece. So uh, a, a mark on the body was used to convey moral blame. Uh, and much of the same logic is, is of course, at work in, in the modern world, just in, in the way that, say, bad teeth uh, can carry um, an, an imputation of, of moral stigma. You've done something wrong. You've eaten too much sugar. That applies to a lot of other things that have to do with, with the body. And I find it interesting the degree to which shame is a, is a factor in, in, in the lives of a lot of people with disabilities, with chronic illnesses. They 
have a sense not just of having done something wrong, but of of being wrong in a sense of not having the right to be out in the world. Uh, that that their mere existence is is perceived as as shameful. And so I, I try to untangle some of the reasons why that is the case, what it is in society that conveys this this sense of deep existential shame. You also, I think, write very interestingly about your ongoing, evolving relationship, intimate relationship with your wheelchair. Tell us something about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, I think it's it's something that a lot of wheelchair users will find obvious and that a lot of non-wheelchair users find utterly surprising, which is that the fact that if you use a wheelchair every day, as I do, it becomes part of your body in a very real sense. There have actually been psychological studies on this, that the uh, proprioception, the the sense of where your body begins and ends uh, for wheelchair users um, and for, you know, people who use canes uh, to get a tactile sense of the world, in in a very real sense, that the sense of your, your own body extends to encompass the wheelchair. And for me, that also means that when, when somebody leans on the wheelchair, thinks of it or uses it like a, an, an object and not as a part of my body, I get very, very uncomfortable. That is, of course, because I depend utterly on this object for moving around in, in the world. I'm vulnerable just in the, in the sort of the fundamental sense that if I get a flat tire, I'm stuck. I can't move around until somebody helps me until I get a, a different wheelchair in place until the, the tire is fixed. And that shapes my entire, you know, a very large range of how I interact with the world. It also means that if I go traveling, if I fly on an airplane, I of course have to send the, the wheelchair as, as cargo. Uh, and for the duration of the flight, it will be impossible for me not to worry about whether the wheelchair will arrive in one piece. Because it, it is in a very specific sense, as though I've had to, to send one of my limbs as cargo. Um, and I won't feel complete until I'm reattached to it. Well, I wanted to talk about a, a couple of instances, good and bad, of, of travel, of experiences of travel over, over your lifetime. Um, tell us something about your experiences of being a student on exchanges to St. Petersburg and Amsterdam. Yeah, now I included those passages in in, in the book because I, I wanted to give it a little bit more of a sense of of seeing that I grew up in a very well functioning welfare state. All, all things considered, um, Norway is is far far from perfect, but it it does have one of the most generous welfare states in in the world, with nothing like the, the degree of austerity that has been been practiced in the UK, for example. Um, and so I wanted to include my experiences of, of studying in, in the Netherlands, in, in, in the United States and in, in Russia as just a way of providing more context. Uh, and Russia for me was a, a, a very difficult place to be, uh, because accessibility and certainly back around the turn of the century was terrible, um, was almost absent. And so being there was a reminder of the things that after all did work back home uh but also of my uh my limitations um in 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 moving around the world i mean i i grew up in an an academic household uh with all of the resources and and, and privileges that made it natural for me to start and complete a university education so i i did have that class privilege 
But at the same time, I had some extremely strict limitations because of being a wheelchair user that made going to Russia as a student of Russian an incredibly steep challenge. After having studied Russian at university for a year, I realized that I, I, I could not realistically pursue that direction further because it, it would simply not be possible for me to spend as much time in that country as I would need to. And so I, I wanted to get, get a sense of the, the boundaries, the very strict boundaries that have sort of, that have surrounded my, my privileges as well. There's that, that, that balance between resources, privileges and, and, and vulnerability that, uh, well, has been a, a very important part of my life. And I wanted to talk about, you've already mentioned Berkeley, but your relationship with California and Berkeley in particular. And I wasn't aware until reading your book of of the part that Berkeley had played in uh, disabled activism in the past. Yes. Um, so that um, again, that that was the sort of the, the sense of a wider world of disability that I wanted to at least hint at uh, in the book. Um, I first went to Berkeley in in 2005, I think it was, and then I spent uh, a year there in 2008, 2009. And I sought Berkeley out because I, I knew something about that, that history of, of disability activism. And it was important for me to, to go there to get a sense of that culture. And it, it, it didn't disappoint. Of course, the, the United States is a, is a terrible country to be, uh, disabled in because of the, the lack of welfare services and, and public support. Uh, but it is also home to an incredibly rich uh, cultural and activist tradition in, in the disability field that started to emerge in the, in the 1960s. Uh, there was a history prior to that, but it, it really came into full flower in, in the 1970s, uh, with some very interesting historical connections to the, the civil rights movement, to, to the Black Panthers even. And so I, I wanted to learn more about that and, and, and found that to be a history that was then not very broadly known. There have been popularizations uh, and very uh, interesting stories that have been been more uh, broadly told over the years. Uh, the film Crip Camp, uh, distributed through through Netflix, was a, a watershed moment in in that regard. But there there's still so much that hasn't been been talked about in in, in wider circles. The historian Paul Longmore, who worked in the Bay Area for for many years, I was fortunate enough to meet, to meet him before he died, uh, wrote that the history of disability is a, a hidden history. Uh, and that is still true to a very great extent. How did becoming a father change your perspective on your own life? Well, it changed everything. I mean, that, I think that, that that is true for a lot of new parents, specifically in, in, in terms of a lot of the things I write about in, in the book. It was transformative for me just to, to see that, that that is something that could happen to me. That is something that I was never sure would happen. And just being able to be uh, a father, to, to see that I was actually able to fulfill that role was maybe the greatest gift I've ever been given. And just one more thing. There's a rather melancholy idea that, that runs through the book, which is the idea that out of the corner of your eye, always not quite present is the possibility of an unlived life, how things might have been different. Yeah, I think that that's something that that haunts um, the lives of a lot of disabled people. And it, it, it speaks to diagnosis again, 
it's the sort of the the notion that but for this thing um there would have been i don't know what a better life uh, more uh, fulfilled life uh, again it's this 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 cultural notion that disability is a kind of deficit that must be made up for in in one way or another and there are so many stories told about disability in in the wider culture in films and books uh, that are either about uh, magical cure or about death um, also as a kind of cure in a way um this is something that that comes to us from from so many angles and so i wanted to to acknowledge that 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 cultural story is there but to also try to write the book as a as an antidote to that to try to engage with but also to start trying to perform a kind of verbal jujitsu on on the medical language the, the clinical and diagnostic language and to, to try to ultimately to try to integrate it into what i wanted to be uh, my own story told in a literary way but with you know with all of the sociological and and uh, philosophical uh, quotations that i wanted to include to try to make it something that would be uh, my own so I've been talking to Jan Gru. We've been talking about his memoir, I Live a Life Like Yours, uh, which is translated into English from Norwegian by B.L. Crook and is out in the UK from Pushkin Press. Jan, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89 Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.